HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm in Vermont, a producer of award-winning handmade cheese from goat and cow milk. For more information, visit considerbardwellfarm.com. Hi, this is Katie Kiefer from What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, everybody, and welcome to The Farm Report, where we talk about the nitty-gritty of agriculture and food production each week. I'm your host, Holly Cederholm, broadcasting live from the Heritage Radio Network in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Today, I'm excited to have Lindsay lusher Shute calling into the studio. Lindsay is a co-founder and the executive director of the National Young Farmers Coalition. NYFC represents, mobilizes, and engages young farmers to ensure their success by supporting practices and policies that will help them now and in the future. It was founded in 2010 and has since engaged tens of thousands of farmers in policy action, galvanized the land trust community around farmland affordability, and organized rural chapters across the country. Through her role as ED, Lindsay regularly keynotes at farmer conferences and is known as an expert on structural issues facing family farms. In 2014, she was named a Champion of Change by the White House. She is also a young farmer. Along with her husband, Ben Shute, she operates Hardy Roots Community Farm on 70 acres in Claremont, New York. Lindsay, welcome to the Farm Report. Hi, thanks for having me on. Um, so I'm I'm very excited to have you on the show today to address some of the largest barriers facing our nation's future farmers. Um, one significant obstacle facing youth in general is the burden of student loan debt. And then this becomes especially crippling when added to the capital investment that a farm requires to get it off the ground. So the National Young Farmers Coalition has been advocating for the passage of um, H.R. 2590, which is the Young Farmer Success, Success Act of 2015. And this adds farming to a list of professions currently covered by the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. So what would this look like in action? The Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program is an, is an existing program um, that 
nonprofit employees, um, doctors, nurses, teachers can take advantage of. And it's intended to help um, encourage people to enter high-demand but um, low-paying careers, or or low-paying at least, you know, at first. And so what we're advocating for is that full-time farmers um, are able to access this program like these other professions. And so if if we were able to pass pass this legislation, um, then farmers um, working full-time on operations grossing more than 35000 a year, um, so that's sort of a de- determination of, you know, what a full-time farmer is, and um, that, you know, cuts out sort of, uh, you know, people who are farming part time or you know more as more as a hobby. Like you know, we're really looking to to benefit full time farmers. Um, well, they would be able to be on an income contingent um, payment plan for ten years, and if they hadn't paid off their loan um, at the end of ten years, then they would be eligible for loan forgiveness. And so, who determines um, the thirty five thousand dollar annual income as the status of a full time farmer? That's a great question, and it's something that would likely be worked out in the rulemaking um, after after the, the bill was passed. Um, figuring out like what agency does what is something um, you know that would would need to be worked out. Essentially, every most farmers are are filing a Schedule F with their with their taxes every year, and you know on that form. It's clear, you know, what the the gross sales are of a farm, um, and so that would make an individual farm qualified um, for its employees, whether that's the owner operator or, you know, other, you know, a farm manager, or a farm worker, um, to qualify um, for this program. Yeah, so I guess. Um, so, but where where did that number come from? Just thinking about it, I know where that. Where did you, they? Oh, where did the thirty five thousand? Yeah. come from. Yeah, because yeah, a good question, and and we've gotten you know some people are like, well, the farm is grossing thirty five thousand. You know, how how on earth would somebody be making a living wage? And and that's a that's a really good question, very valid question. Um, we were trying to set a threshold that's low enough um, that we're not excluding people who are who are getting going, who are you know working full-time um, on a farm as an owner-operator and, um, you know, um, just, you know, in, the, in their first few years, maybe, you know, they are grossing 35 or 45. They likely have an off-farm job as well. Um, but we wanted to be able to help those people count those first years, even though they might not be earning a lot, um, as part of, you know, make those years count towards their uh, student loan forgiveness. There's um, a large set of um, farms in the United States that are more or less hobby farms where those farms are uh, grossing less than 10000 a year. So we wanted to make sure that, you know, that, that type of farm, you know, has its place, but that the farms that um, this program would really be helping our, you know, young people in agriculture who are really pursuing it as a, as a full-time career. See, it's interesting to me because I'm coming at it from the other end where $35,000 is a very meager living annually. It also seems like that could be kind of a high bar for certain farmers starting out, even if they're doing it full time. Or for a farmer, for instance, in that 10-year window in which they need to be filing their Schedule Fs and meeting that bar um, if they have a crop failure during that year. So it, I was just curious, because in looking at the other mm. the other professions that are currently covered in the forgiveness program, there there is no um, salary requirement. 
there's mm-hmm. other vetting options that come in, like they um, have to have, um, you know, their full-time status. I think it's 30 hours a week or more um, mm-hmm. in one of these careers vetted by their um, place of business. But it, so I thought it was interesting in looking at it that there is this requirement. Yeah, I mean that, that's a that's a great um, that's a great point, and I think that you know we are certainly open to sort of smart solutions as as to you know how to limit like the the group of individuals that might be qualified for this program, um, both in a way that's um, not so limiting that it's it's penalizing you know people who are just starting out or having like a, you know, have a very bad year, crop failure or something of, of that nature, like that's certainly not the, <laughs> not the intent. Yeah. <laughs> um, but at the same time, isn't um, casting a net so wide that you have um, a lot of farmers that are, are really not pursuing it as a, as a full-time um, profession, um, that they somehow would not be eligible for loan forgiveness. Because, you know, when, you know, the more people that are included in any federal program, the higher cost of yeah. that program. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the um, less palatable it is, um, you know, to, to Congress. So we are trying to just, you know, make a, a definition that is, um, you know, narrow, yet broad enough to, you know, include um, individuals. The, the population it's trying to target. Yeah. yeah. But so, crop failure, that's, you know, that's a, that's a great um, example of something that, you know, we haven't, you know, necessarily worked out, but, you know, depending on the you know, agency that's administering this program, if it was USDA, for instance, you know, maybe there's, you know, something in the event of crop failure that could be filed to say, you know, this is, this is what happened in this year, and, and there would be some, like, verification process of, of some sort. But um, it's, you know, it's a starting place, and most, you know, we looked at our, um, you know, just the general USDA statistics on, you know, farm farm sales and, you know, thinking about our membership and, you know, just talking to people, and 35,000 just seemed like as a gross number for gross sales, yeah. um, like a pretty pretty good place to start. Yeah, and as, in terms of the other um, kind of definitions for this, um, what is considered like an agricultural product? Is it anything that's produced on farm? Like would a, a value-added product like cheese that's made out of the dairy you're producing or tomato jam made out of your tomato crop, are those mm. considered or is it just straight up like raw products? No, it, it could be any, any farm sales. So anything that you're, you're, you as a farmer are, are you know, selling off of your farm, whether you know, it's, it's a raw if it's carrots or it's pickled carrots, um, you know, all of that, you know, counts towards your, your farm sales for the year. So if you were, you know, a dairy and selling ice cream, you know, that would still be counted towards your, your farm sales. Yeah. If you're doing strictly, like, um, value-added, like, produce, like, you, uh, products, rather, you were, um, you know, an ice cream maker and not a dairy farmer, I don't think you would be included at in the current definition of the program, um, but if you were a dairy farmer and also, you know, selling ice cream from your farm stand, that would all be, you know, included towards, you know, your sales. Um, great. So, in terms of, um, you said after, so 10 years is the time that, under the current definition of the um, the public service loan forgiveness program, um, mm-hmm. you have to be enrolled in this. And um, mm-hmm. then you're eligible for your loan forgiveness. Because it's an income-based program, it's like they calculate based on some metric, based on where you live and all these other factors, I'm mm-hmm. guessing. Um, 
they calculate what um, you should be paying each month. And likely, if you're on an income-based program seeking student loan forgiveness, you're not going to pay off your loan and if it's a you know any of the average size loans that people are leaving undergraduate school with these days. So what um, you said you're eligible for the loan forgiveness. What does like so you 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 get your loan forgiven, or are there are additional steps at the end of these ten years. So no, I'll just, um, for full transparency, I'll say that no one yet has received any forgiveness under this program. It's a very new program for any any career. Um, so actually sort of what the steps are to getting that forgiveness, I think the, the detail is, is, you know, still, still being worked out. Um, but the idea is, yes, after you've worked 10 um, ten years um, and have made on-time income-based payments for that entire 10-year period, then then you would um, likely have to, you know, fill out a, some paperwork yeah. and then would receive, um, you know, forgiveness or, you know, the, the federal government would then be, you know, paying your loan servicer, um, which I think is, in the case of the public service loan forgiveness program, you actually have to move your loans um, to the federal government as your servicer, um, that the loans at that point would be forgiven. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I think it's 2017, I think, was saying that, mm-hmm. they, that it might be when it actually the first group of people enrolled in this program will be eligible. Um, yep. but so on the so this is great. I mean, I'm very excited about this and I'm excited that the details are getting hashed out. Um, and so we've got the the Young Farmers Success Act, which was introduced at the House last summer, I believe. So what is the timeline for this particular um, broaden, potential broadening of the forgiveness program to farmers? Right. Well, so we introduced the bill in the House um, early, early summer of, of last year, and we have bipartisan support in the House, which is great. It also needs to be introduced in the Senate. We um, are working on uh, getting Senate sponsors at this time, so hopefully it'll be introduced there as well. But really, this bill is a marker bill, um, which means that it wouldn't be passed on its own. It would be passed as part of a larger package of legislation, um, and that is um, the Higher Education Act, which hopefully is going to be um, debated. And I, I mean, it's hard to say whether it would pass this year, mm-hmm. but you know, and it's, a, it's an election year. Um, it's fairly likely that it would, um, you know, be something that was really taken up in 2017 with the new administration. But nonetheless, the idea is that it's introduced, the ideas are out there, um, you know, you have support from the committee, um, the education committee, the agricultural committee, and you're able to get this language inserted in the larger package of, of legislation. It's a similar um, strategy that we've used, for instance, with the Farm Bill. Uh, we introduced um, the Beginning Farmer and Rancher Opportunity Act. We actually ended up introducing it two times before the last Farm Bill, and some of the provisions from that were then incorporated into the larger Farm Bill. So that's, that's the same model for the Young Farmer Success Act, and that you know we want the, this like small bit of language to be put in the, in the bigger bill. Yeah. Um, so... In the meantime, it seems like there are some alternate, at least I've seen at least two alternate forgiveness models that are coming up, one in New York and one in Pennsylvania. Do you know anything about these? Well, actually, uh, 
Yes, I know a little bit about the, the New York State program. Um, in fact, one of our farmers in our network um, and also our operations manager um, was able to take advantage of the New York State program. Um, and, and the first um, round of that uh, forgiveness was last year, in 2015. Um, and that that program is essentially available for uh, young people who have gone to school in New York State and are farming in New York State. So um, she was eligible for that for that program. Um, and so, unfortunately, there's you know if, if you've gone to school out of state, that <laughs> it's not going to work. Yeah. Um, and the Pennsylvania program, I I'm not I don't actually know the status of that. Um, I, I think it was introduced at one point, and then it lost funding, and I don't know that it's it's currently active at this point. Yeah, it seemed like, in, in looking briefly over the New York program, it seemed really great for, like you said, New York students who are residents of New York and who plan to be in New York. The interesting thing that I saw is that it seems like they re... Um, they forgive a portion of your loan each year that you're enrolled in the program with sort of like this five-year... Um, expectancy um, of forgiveness with a cap of like 10000 per year to be a full allotment of $50,000 towards your loans, which seems, um, I, I really, there, there are pros and cons, I think, to all things, but that seemed really interesting that like you could, you know, commit to farming for a year um, and see your, you know, in, and you're not getting like crop failure or other things that could happen over this 10-year period that the the other loan program is requiring. So I thought it was interesting to see these different models taking place. Yes. I mean, the, the New York State model, it, and, you know, for um, the farmer that, that I was talking about, it's worked great. I mean, her loans are forgiven. She doesn't have to worry about student <laughs> debt, um, whereas, the, you know, the federal um, sort of remedy that we're, we're promoting to add farmers to the public service loan forgiveness program, those farmers are still going to be paying their loans uh, for 10 years, which, you know, it's, um, you know, it's income-based, so um, assuming that it would be a manageable amount to pay. But, um, you know, having a program like what's being introduced uh, in New York State would be a lot more expensive um, on the federal level, of course. So, yeah, that was one I of think, the, the cons yeah. that I was noting is that it seemed like the, it's it's almost um, the language seemed almost first come, first serve. And I don't know a lot about right. it, but it's just like, you know, we'll, we offer this, but it's, you know, pending applicants and the applicant pool. And mm-hmm. um, it's almost too good to be true, except, you know, it is true for the people that um, take advantage of it in its early stages. So it's um, it's great to see that. And it's also, yeah, how do we have a model that is um, that the federal government will actually pass? Mm-hmm. Yes, our goal is that we're able to, you know, ex- to make a paying back loans affordable for as many farmers as possible, and in you know states that are more progressive, like New York State, but also you know in Louisiana, you know, <laughs> you know, like yeah. all over the country, where there's you know a varying, um, you know. Uh, interest in this type of policy as well as just like public resources to pay for them so um you know we're going the federal route just because it seems i mean that is clearly like the most scalable and there's also you know already a precedent out there for these other careers 
Um, so you mentioned um, using the example of the the New York program. It, the you know you have to be a New York resident in terms of the um, the federal. Um, um, push in the Young Farmer Success Act. Are there certain loans that are the only, like, are certain loans eligible for this, or is it all student loans, or how does that work? My understanding of the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program is that it does not cover, um, like, private loans that you may have taken out during school. So, like, the, um, I'm, I'm actually eligible for this program because I am a farmer, but I'm also working full-time at the National Young Farmers Coalition. So I've gone ahead and enrolled myself in, in this public service loan forgiveness program. And I know I, you know, took out plus loans, and so I could include those, um, you know, in, in the um, program. But I know that there are, you know, other types of loans that people get um, when they're in school, and those loans it's my understanding, are not included in, in the scope of that program at, at this time. Yeah. But I don't, I don't know, I don't know um, as much about that just because I haven't, haven't looked into it specifically. Yeah. Um, well, great. So um, it's time to take a short break. When we get back, we're going to dig into some more of the barriers facing young farmers on the land today. Today's program has been brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm. Spanning the rolling hills of Vermont's Champlain Valley and easternmost Washington County, New York. 300-acre Consider Bardwell Farm was the first cheese-making co-op in Vermont founded in 1864 by Consider Stebbins Bardwell himself. Rotational grazing on pesticide-free and fertilizer-free pastures produces the sweetest milk and the tastiest cheese. All of their cheeses are aged on the farm in their extensive system of caves. Consider Bardwell Farm is also a big supporter of Heritage Foods USA's No Goat Left Behind program. No Goat Left Behind is a serious effort launched in 2011 by Heritage Foods USA designed to introduce goat meat to American diners and provide a sustainable end market for dairy animals. For more information, please visit www.considerbardwellfarm.com. You've tuned into the Farm Report. Today we have Lindsay Shute from the National Young Farmers Coalition on the line, and we're discussing some of the biggest barriers facing young farmers today. Before the break, I said facing farmers on the land today, but one of the biggest challenges is land and land access. So um, what options do new farmers have for land tenure, and what are some of the inherent challenges? That's a great question. Yeah, land is likely the most difficult challenge that most young and beginning farmers will face. And when I say land, I mean finding land that they can have for a long time, um, and that is affordable. So land that they can either buy outright or that they can rent and have a very long-term lease on um, and are able to make capital improvements on, um, you know, put in barns if they need to or high tunnels for production or a wash pack facility, whatever it might be. Um, build finding up their soil. A, a, I, I, what, I'm sorry, what did you say? Alex? Build up their soil. Build up their soil, exactly. Um, having a, a place to you know, conduct uh, business, 
um, and have that place be affordable and secure is is a major challenge. Uh, it's a major challenge in particular for farmers that are doing direct marketing, living you know within a couple hundred miles of a major city. The land is very very expensive, um, you know, because there there is pressure from um, non farmers and the like, you know, purchasing purchasing farms um, and out, outbidding an average farmer. So the average the way that we're seeing our farmers um, find land, um, many of them are renting land to begin with, which is not a, not a um, bad thing to do. It's a, it's a great way for people to learn about farming if, if they haven't farmed in the past, um, to get their businesses going, um, you know, to, to test out sometimes, um, you know, people grow vegetables to begin with, but then they decide they really love flower farming or livestock or whatever. So, you know, give some, some flexibility and some, you know, opportunity um, for, for change. Um, but then at some point, farmers are, are looking for something more permanent. And so some farmers are able to negotiate, a, you know, 20-year or 50-year lease um, on some properties. That, that is one option. Um, it is quite difficult, however, to find a landowner willing to give a lease um, for that amount of time. Yeah. Um, some farmers are, are going out and buying land, figuring out how to do that. Um, there are you know, a variety of options for making that land more affordable. One of the options that Young Farmers Coalition talks a lot about is partnering with the land trust uh, to put a conservation easement on that property at the same time, which reduces the value of the land. Um, it also permanently protects the land from, from development, which is a good thing for farmers at least. So, so um, how does that look like um, from the so with the conservation easement on the land? Like, what does that look like from both sides? Like the landowner who might be um, currently holding it, and then the future, hopefully, farmer that's going to get it. Like, what are the pieces of that? Right. So, there are a couple different types of conservation easements out there. Uh, there's a traditional type of conservation easement, and that essentially restricts development on a given farm. Um, so what happens is, a, you know, a land trust approaches a farmer, a farmer approaches a land trust and says, you know, we want to conserve this land and protect it from development over the long term. And um, the farmer can either donate um, the value, the added value um, of, you know, being essentially the, the development rights um, to the land trust or the land trust purchases those development rights from the farmer. And then at, at that point, there's a, a written contract that says, um, you know, this land can never be developed. And the farmer is either compensated for that in, in cash or, you know, with um, certain tax, tax breaks because they've made a significant charitable um, donation. So the other type of easement um, that we have really been promoting at the Farmers Coalition um, is important because it ensures that land remains um, open and available for farming, but it also uh, remains affordable um, to working farmers. And that's called a working farm easement. It's something that's used in the state of Vermont, state of Massachusetts, and increasingly actually all across the country. There are examples of it now here in New York State, which is which has been great to see. And in this type of conservation easement, the land is protected from development and the land must be owned by a working farmer. So 
a working farmer who agrees to put this type of um, working farm easement on their land essentially says that when the land is ready to transition, they have to sell it to someone oh. who's making more than 50% of their income um, through farming. Yeah. You know, back, back to that Schedule F um, <laughs> that, you know, farmers, you know, have to sell it every year. It's, a, it's the same thing. Um, you know, the, the person has to essentially um, verify that they are, you know, a, a real working farmer. Um, and so that, that's farm, an... the, essentially if the farmer attempts to sell the land to someone who's not a farmer, then the land trust has the option to buy back the land and sell it to um, a, you know, qualified farmer. And that's an instance where... Um the farmer who was leasing land to jumpstart some of their enterprises would be eligible to buy a farm that had a working farm easement because they had been filing Schedule Fs? Or would it not? Because um, what if someone um, wanted to start a farm? They wouldn't be eligible to buy that because they wouldn't have um, the background on their taxes. Yes. that Well, you don't have to be an independent operator or owner-operator uh, to qualify, you could be working on somebody else's farm okay. and still be making a significant portion of your income in farming. That's that's really sort of um, the only thing that matters. It doesn't matter if you if your name is on the schedule or not. It's just that you ha- you have to have you know been been farming for a certain amount of time and intend to farm you know this this property. Um, and you know the land trust has the option to, you know to review the qualifications of the person who. Um, you know, the, the buyer, the new buyer of the land to, you know, ensure that they will be really farming this land um, you know, as, as was intended by the original easement. Yeah. Um, and so what, who are some of the partners that um, you've been working with on um, negotiating um, more of these conservation easements or just what, it, yeah, where, tell me more. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So um, we did a survey in uh, 2012, we released it and uh, put out a report called um, Conservation 2.0, Farmland Conservation 2.0. And this was all about how a traditional conservation easement doesn't go far enough. Um, and we're seeing you know, land that was conserved with public money that is essentially being purchased by non-farmers and then not really kept in production. Um, and People are um, contributing to land trusts, and they're paying tax dollars um, in support of programs that are supposed to uh, protect farms and so and farmland and active farms. Like that's what that's what everyone wants to see. Everyone wants food, and everyone wants you know um, vital and um, vibrant local economies, which yeah. farms farm support. So we were basically saying in that report that you know traditional conservation isn't going far enough, and we found from our survey of about 200 land trusts that about a quarter of them had seen uh, protected land go out of production because it was purchased by a non-farmer. So this working Mm. farm easement really tackles that issue specifically. But at that time, very, very few land trusts nationally um, were using these types of conservation easements. So what we've done is a couple of things. We have um, both worked to ensure that there's federal money available for these types of conservation easements across the board. Um, And we have also been um, holding professional development trainings for land trusts all across the country to teach them how to use these working farm easements. They are are new. um, There's, 
you know, um, each state has different rules that you have to follow, and so we've been um, working um, with land trusts, um, you know, really on a national level to help more of them put these um, types of easements in place. Next week, I'm actually going to be traveling um, to western Colorado. We're going to be having um, a, a training there with you know, about 10 land trusts that are going to be in attendance. Uh, we had a training in, uh, in California last year in Sacramento. We had a training before that in Providence, Rhode Island. So there's growing interest across the country in this type of conservation easement um, because land trusts are, are concerned about what they're seeing, and they're also, you know, looking at, you know, the bigger problem in, in agriculture of so much land um, about to transition, and I think they really want to be a part of making sure that that land is transitioning to working farmers. Here in New York State, um, I am we are actually on our farm right now working with uh, Scenic Hudson as well as Equity Trust on putting this type of conservation easement on our own farm to make sure that, you know, all the work we're putting into making sure, you know, this is a working farm um, here at Hardy Roots Community Farm, our farm, um, that that will be passed down to, you know, other generations of working farmers. Um, th that's the goal. So, um, you know, that's, that's really right, great. right in the Hudson Valley, it's, you know, Scenic Hudson, Columbia Land Conservancy is, is working on some of these, Agricultural Stewardship Association, um, and all of those groups are also partnering um, with Equity Trust specifically on, on, um, on making, you know, the easements just right and, you know, in compliance with New York State law. In terms of the working farm easement, I'm just thinking of, I don't know, um, if you do, you, do you have children that you hope to transfer your farm to someday? Yeah, we have two little girls who are two and four, so, you know, not for some time, but, um, <laughs> yeah, that, you know, if they, if they want to farm, then, um, yes, absolutely, they, we, would we would love to be able to uh, transition the farm to them. So th how does that, in the working farm easement, there's an allowance for that um, the same way, they're, as long as they're going to work the farm, um, it, it allows for that kind of fam family transfer? Right. Honestly, it, de it depends on who's writing the easement. Um, sometimes um. it does and sometimes it doesn't. So if, I mean, you're right, um, sometimes, you know, the, the, a family member is considered a, you know, a qualified buyer um, of the land or owner of the land, um, and sometimes that, that is not part of um, the working farm easement. They also have to, you know, uh, demonstrate that they will work the land. Yeah. Um, so it just it just it just depends um, both on the land trust writing it and you know the farmer who signs it you know if they if they want you know their family member um, to be in there and you know that to be a, a qualified transfer then you know they they write it into request it request that yeah. Oh, great. Um, so that's interesting. I've never, I, I haven't heard about these working farm easements, and it's, I'm excited to learn more. So thanks for digging into that a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, one other thing, just transitioning a little bit, um, I want to highlight um, another n report that the National Young Farmers Coalition has just put out. So in, um, in tangent with um, access to land in some areas of the country, um, access to water on top of access to land is a huge barrier. So um, there in the the west there's um a lot of attention coming down to water scarcity for farmers and like i've said you've just issued a new report highlighting these challenges and i was hoping that you could give us an overview sure um well we it's it's interesting um when um national young farmers coalition 
um, got started, we were coming from things from a, a very, you know, uh, northeast, eastern pers- um, perspective where, you know, water is falling is from the sky. <laughs> so, and, um, you know, uh, actually, um, you know, as we've seen with, you know, several extreme weather events, you know, flooding um, can be a much greater challenge, um, you know, than, than um, lack of water. But in the southwest, in the arid west, and, and certainly, you know, in a, in a time of drought, um, water is a major concern um, for, for young people in agriculture. So, you know, after, um, you know, Working with our our Western members, we decided that you know water was something that we um, like. We're engaging with land um, as a key issue. Water was something that we wanted to engage on as well. Um, so we have an office based in Durango, Colorado, and our um, program lead there, Kate Greenberg, traveled all across uh, the arid Southwest surveying farmers and community members about water um, and, you know, how people are using water and their, their conservation measures um, and also just, you know, their, their top agricultural um, concerns. And actually, you know, among the concerns, like ag concerns, including, you know, access to capital, access to land, water emerged as um, you know, number one, um, you know, among their concerns. Um, actually, um, climate change also was was a top concern, um, which was really interesting to us because that's not something that we had really talked to our um, farmer um, constituency about before. But, I mean, of, of course, it's on all of our minds, but it was interesting that that was um, such a priority. And we also found um, that most of our young people um, that we surveyed are already using really good conservation practices. Um, and what are, about, what are some of the and concerns? About 94% of them. Um, so, you know, that's um, something like drip irrigation um, as opposed to flood irrigation. Um, is, um, so there's, there's uh, some, like, you know, technical fixes um, that, you know, help to um, conserve water, but actually the most, um, you know, popular way to conserve water is um, building soil um, and taking care of the soil and, you know, being able to hold more water in the soil, um, as, you know, as opposed to just conserving the water, making sure that, you know, the soil is doing its, its part as well. So um, that survey is then going to be used for um, our work on the Farm Bill and our work, you know, across the West um, to essentially, you know, talk to lawmakers about why it's so important to lift up the next generation of young farmers in the West that, you know, are already, um, you know, using great conservation practices that we want all farmers to use. Um, But, you know, those farmers are, you know, facing the same challenges that we are out east with land access and access to capital and all the rest. Um, But then they have this, you know, additional, you know, concern of um, access to water. Um, Um, We also found that the federal programs, like the conservation programs that are supposed to be helping those farmers that, you know, can provide capital with cost share are not reaching many of the young farmers in the West. So that's something that we're going to be um, looking into a lot more. 
Um, so just to, to back up for a minute, for those of us with the Northeast perspective who are used to the, the rain falling from the sky and having maybe mm-hmm. farm ponds. Um, so what, I mean, water rights are like a thing out West. Like you have, um, you know, a, like prioritized access to water. So what does that, can you maybe speak a little bit about that so we can picture it? Like I'm, you know, I'm used to farming in the Northeast and a, a lot of our listeners might be too. So what, what does that actually look like in terms of, um, how you get access to water and some of the the challenges to just getting the water. Right. Well, you know, I, I, maybe in another program, you should have Kate Greenberg uh, on, <laughs> who's our uh, Western Program Director, to, to tell, to, she can, you know, uh, talk at length on um, water law, which is actually one of the things in the survey that we found out um, that even the farmers in the West don't fully understand it. Yeah. Um, and um, there's just a lot of misperceptions about, um, you know, how water is used um, and water rights and all the rest. And, you know, that, that adds to confusion and that actually adds to a lot of, a lot of water um, being, being wasted. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I, I am definitely not an expert on this, but essentially, you know, um, we are used to, we use wells um, and surface um, water on our farm. Um, in the West, you know, of course, some people do have groundwater that they have access to, um, but not everyone. And of course, you know, we hear a lot of stories about in California how that you know groundwater levels are dropping um, lower and lower, and so fewer farmers have access to you know that type of um, water for irrigation um, purposes. But many farmers irrigate off of ditches in the West, and those ditches are diverted from. Um, you know, tributaries of um, often the Colorado River. Um, the Colorado River Basin um, is where many of our, our tractors and our, and our farmers are, are located. And so there, you know, is um, someone who's in charge of the ditch, essentially a company and, um, you know, their individual managers, and, you know, um, they turn on the water essentially at a certain point in the year. So often you won't have water until, you know, such and such day, and then you'll, you'll receive your, your water. Um, and there's a certain amount of water that you are allowed to have on your farm, um, and, you know, that's, that's what you have the right to, or, you know, people, um, you know, pay for rights from other people. And, and that type of sort of trading also um, goes on. But one of the things that, you know, surfaced in this report is that, um, you know, it's, some farmers think that they have to keep using, you know, the amount of water that they have the right to um, to be able to keep, you know, that amount of water uh, as their right. So, so they, they even don't, if they don't need it, right? Yeah. So that's like one of the things that um, you know farmers don't fully understand, and we're tr- we're trying also to see if you know more education um, or even if you know policy change at some point um, would be. Um, I, you know, practical or possible or, or whatnot. We're trying to see like how how we can in, engage um, on that end of things, but really just you know helping farmers who are in the situation who have limited access to water, you know, be able to use conservation practices um, that are make their farms you know economically viable as well. Yeah, and it seems like um, on top of that, just tying it back into getting farmers on the land, it would seem like water. Um, would be an added expense to like when you're prioritizing buying your farmland. Um, it's I I'm, I'm just guessing that um, 
water uh, land with water rights or prioritized water rights or however much would probably be more expensive and adding another barrier to the the cost of getting on the land. Yes, that's something that we heard um, many times in our in our focus groups that irrigated farmland was unaffordable to mm. farmers. Yeah. So yes, I mean it's it's um, definitely makes land much more ex- more expensive in the region. Yeah. Um, Wow, that's I, I'm still wrapping my head around that again. Coming from the Northeast, just <laughs> not t- taking <laughs> no, some things for a, it's granted. A different, it's a different world. Yeah. Um, well, if um, folks want to check out the the new report on um, water rights or any of the other reports or the platforms that we've talked about here today, um, they can look up the National Young Farmers Coalition on the web at www.youngfarmers.org. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining me today and going over some of the great work that you're doing. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Great yeah. to be here. Um, and that's another episode of the Farm Report. Thanks everybody for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 